Take your copies of God's Word and turn back to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we're plodding right along in chapter 3. And we come now to verse number 10 in 1 Corinthians. We believe this makes for our 16th week in this epistle. And the Lord has surely fed us from this glorious book. I'm going to be preaching part one of a two-part message because this passage here, verses 10 through 15, really are one cohesive unit in Paul's train of thought. And so we want to preach the Bible contextually. I don't want to take Paul out of his context. But on the other hand, there's a lot in these verses, and I don't intend to keep you here till midnight. So... We'll break this up, and Lord willing, next time we meet together, we will finish this section. But I want us to consider churches concrete or combustible. Churches concrete or combustible. We'll begin reading with verse number 10 in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. These are the words of God. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder... I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon his foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire." Let me begin this evening by reminding you where we have been thus far in chapter 3. In verses 1 through 4, Paul addressed the carnality and spiritual immaturity of the Corinthians head on. And he asked them that poignant rhetorical question, Are ye not carnal? And then in verses 5 through 9, he began to address the manifestations of this immaturity by putting ministers into their proper perspective. And we looked the last several weeks at the role of the minister in God's economy of grace. He is simply a tool. He is simply an instrument in the hands of a sovereign God who administers His grace to whomever He will, however He will, whenever He will. We are simply the mouthpieces. We do not possess within us the efficacy or the power to save anyone or to edify anyone, or to sanctify anyone. No, God is the one who does those things, but we also understand that our God is a God of means. We believe in the means of grace, and some of those means are the preaching of the Word, the reading of the Word, the ordinances of the church, the local assembly, and all that is contained within that ministry are the means by which God is good to His people. So, when we get to verse 10, Paul is kind of taking a a step back and he's getting a little bit more broad in his his explanation. He's not just going to look at the minister specifically, but now he's going to look at the entire New Testament ministry. 
the entire new covenant economy of grace. And Paul really is launching off from the last phrase in verse number 9. The last phrase in verse number 9, look at it. Paul says, Ye are God's building. Ye are God's building. And now in verses 10 through 16, he is going to be using this analogy of a building. And he's going to say, I'm the master builder, and you build thereupon, and I lay a foundation, and you have these materials, and you build upon the foundation that I have set. Uh, There's several here this evening that are in the home-selling business, and they know something about laying foundations and setting homes, and they can tell you if you use faulty materials, you're going to have a terrible final product. And if you do not have a solid foundation, that home, no matter how good the materials are, over time it will crumble and collapse. And so this is kind of the analogy that Paul is using. We hear the term often, the house of God, the house of God. And when we think about the house of God in the new covenant, we don't want to think of the physical walls of this building that we sit in. That is not the house of God in the new covenant. The house of God in the new covenant are the redeemed members that make up that ecclesia. And there is a proper way to build upon that ministry. And that is what Paul is explaining in these verses. In this text... We will see the place of the church and our relationship and responsibilities with regard to the church as those to whom God has stewarded the building up, perpetuation, and continuing of the local assembly. And there are two main things for us to consider in these verses. And we're going to consider them in two messages tonight we will look at the only true and proper foundation upon which the church is built. And next time, in verses 12 through 15, we will look at the suitable materials that are used in the building of the church. So we have the foundation and the materials. And these two things, the foundation and the materials, encompass everything that pertains to all aspects of the ministry. If we get these two things right, if we have the right foundation and the right materials, we will be involved in a work that is pleasing to God. But if we get either of these two things wrong, we are not doing the Lord's work. Both of them are indispensable. It is not okay to have one and not the other. And these two things determine whether we build a church that is concrete or combustible. Let me offer this warning as we approach this text. This is a passage that is often decontextualized. What do I mean by that? Well, it is frequently taken out of context, and you will often hear it applied to Christians in their individual capacity, your individual life. They will quote these verses, and they will say, this is all about how you have lived your Christian life, and you need to live your Christian life with the right materials, and you need to live your Christian life with the right foundation. And that is true, but the primary thrust of this text is not us in our individual capacity, but it is us in our capacity as an assembly. I was reading an article, I don't remember where I saw it, but I was reading an article, and it was addressing this idea, and no doubt you've heard this idea, that Christianity is all about a personal relationship with Jesus. Christianity is all about a personal relationship with Jesus. And again, there is truth to that. If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, you're not a Christian. But Christianity is not about you as an individual. 
It's not about something you do personally. Christianity is about the covenant people of God coming together to serve and worship their king. That is what Christianity is about. So this text is in that vein of thinking. It is principally an exhortation to the church as a collective unit. So all of you are the intended audience of this. If you are indeed attached to a local assembly, you are the audience to this, but not in your individual capacity, in your capacity as a member of the body. And it is chiefly addressed to pastors or elders, ministers, but it also reaches to each and every minister. And this tells us two things. Number one, Church membership is expected of New Testament Christians. That you, you will not find a faithful servant in the New Testament that is not affiliated with the local assembly. It is not there. It is implied that all faithful Christians are members of a local body because the church is the place of worship and service under the administration of the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, you could not properly worship God apart from the tabernacle and the temple. It was impossible. That is where the sacrifices were. That is where the rituals were. That is where the ceremonies were. Well, it's true in the New Covenant as well. This is the temple of God. This is where God has placed the stewardship of His Word and the administration of His ordinances. And I'm not saying that you must be in the local assembly to be spiritually saved. But if you're going to faithfully serve God, you must be a part of the Lord's temple. And the blessing about the new covenant, why it is a new and better covenant, it is that that temple is not defined and restricted to one physical location in Jerusalem. But that temple is wherever the Spirit, as we sang earlier, the church is one foundation, born by the Spirit and the Word. Wherever the Spirit and the Word have produced this assembly and in the last 2,000 years, this Christian religion that began with 11 men in an attic in one assembly in Jerusalem has now spread all over the world. And we have assemblies in all of our street corners throughout America that constitute this temple. The second thing, though, is that all church members are expected to serve the body. It is not just pastors or deacons who serve. Every church member should have some place of service. You are all priests unto your God, as the Bible says in the New Covenant. There is no more special Levitical priesthood in the New Covenant. All Christians constitute that priesthood. And consider these things as we now will expound this text. Make it your number one priority in life to ensure that you have joined with a biblical New Testament church so that you may be a part of what the apostle is here describing. And if you're already a member of a faithful church, especially if it's here, then ask yourself this, what is my role of service in this ministry? What is it that I do as a contributing member of the body? And if you know what your job is, then commit yourself to performing it to the best of your God-given abilities. And if you're sitting there not having an answer to that, then consider the needs around you and by prayer and counsel become a true servant. That's what the, the apostle is saying to us here. So let us just look. I have, 
I have a heading for each one of these verses in this passage, and we're only going to get through the first two tonight, and then we'll get through the other four next Lord's Day. Let us look at verse 10, the framers. Verse 10, the framers. The framers are those responsible for laying the foundation and building upon it. Paul says in verse 10, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. For Paul, his ministry was just as much an act of God's grace as his conversion. You understand what the apostle is saying. Uh, Paul was not just saved and then sitting around twiddling his thumbs and he decided that he would just enter into the ministry because that was just something he wanted to do. No, for Paul, the call into the ministry, the call to serve Christ was just as gracious, just as specific, just as intimate, just as powerful as his call to salvation. The grace here mentioned is serving grace, which enabled Paul to fulfill that calling. If you are going to serve Christ, you will be serving him by grace. Just as you are saved by grace, so too will you serve by grace. And serving grace is always bound up within and inseparable from saving grace. Everyone to whom God gives saving grace, he also gives serving grace. God never saved anyone for the purpose of warming a pew. God never saved anyone so they could sit idly by and watch as others carried along the ministry. And oh, how this truth needs to be proclaimed and shouted from the rooftops in the midst of the Americanized Christianity that surrounds us. So many look at the church as what they can get out of it. And they go church shopping and church hopping looking for the church that has the most to offer them. What a radical revolution would take place if we would start looking at churches not on what they could give us, but how much could I give to them? When's the last time you heard someone say, yes, I joined this church because when I first visited, I saw that they had so many needs and there was so much that needed to be done and they needed some servants and that's why I came here. Now you hear people say all the time, well, I went to this church because they had a wonderful music ministry and they had all of these kids events and they had all these special meetings and they have cookouts and they have all of these wonderful things and I'm not against Some of those things, some of them I am, some of them I'm not. But we say, well, I picked this church because all of these things it could offer for me. But how often do we hear, no, I went to this church because of the needs that they had that I felt I could meet with the grace of God. By the way, those are the type of people we're looking for here. We don't want pew warmers. We need those who are ready to get in the trenches and to serve. That's what church planting is. It is serving. God did not just save you so that you could live with Him in heaven someday. He saved you so that you could live for Him today. Turn with me. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians. I, I think this is really important for us to consider. I know, we, I know we've gotten through the first sentence and here I go off on a tangent, but... Turn with me to Ephesians chapter number 2. And I want you to see this beautiful soteriological portion of Scripture. 
Same apostle that is writing to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. And look at verse 8, 9, and 10. Paul says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we like to say yes and amen to those verses. It is by grace that you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. What is not of yourself? The salvation that came to you by the grace of God and the faith that He gave to you. You didn't save yourself. God saved you by His grace. And we like to hoop and holler about that wonderful portion of Scripture, but suddenly we get really quiet when we read verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Notice the logical and certain progression in these verses. Not only did God ordain your salvation before the foundation of the world, He also ordained the fruits of your salvation, which are the good works that you are to walk in because of the grace you received from God. Therefore, anyone who professes to have received the saving grace of God, but has no desire to serve Christ, and does not, in fact, serve Christ, only manifests that they were never truly a partaker of grace to begin with. The faith that God gives is a living faith. There are no stillborns birthed into the family of God. And if God has administered saving grace to you, He will also administer serving grace. Now, saving grace does not come in different degrees. The same grace that drastically converted Paul on the road to Damascus is the same grace that saved each and every one of you. No doubt there's some that grew up in Christian homes and never could even recall a time in which they did not give intellectual assent to the gospel. Nevertheless, they were depraved, and they did need to be saved, and they were saved by grace. So the conversion outwardly does not look as dramatic, but it is the same grace that saves every sinner. Sanctifying grace and serving grace does have degrees. And the degree to which you yield yourself to the Spirit of God and the degree to which you are faithful to follow Christ will be the degree to which you are appropriating the serving grace of God. It is not that it is not available for you. It is that you fail to appropriate it. It is like the feller that went on the cruise and all he could afford, all he could afford was the price of the ticket. And he's on this cruise ship and it's been several weeks and he had packed crackers and sardines and he is just getting so tired of eating these sardines. And he walks on the main deck of the cruise and someone calls him and says, Sir, would you like supper? We're having supper. And he says, No, I'm sorry. I can only afford a ticket for the cruise. I could not afford meals. And he said, Sir, your ticket was all-inclusive. It contained everything you needed to get you from when you left the port to when you will arrive at your final destination. Everything is included. That is how God gives grace to His children. You will sometimes run across those who talk about receiving the second blessing. And as my friend David Morris likes to say to them, he will say, 
I'm not looking for a second blessing. I'm still caught up in the first blessing. All the riches of heavenly treasure in Christ Jesus given to you. God has saved you. He has saved you to serve Him. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says, According to the grace of God which is given unto me, that is the grace that Paul needed to serve Jesus Christ. He says that I am a wise master builder and I have laid the foundation. Paul has told us the fuel for this service, the grace of God. Now he will define what this service entailed. Others in this text are builders, but Paul alone is the master builder. This word master builder, wise master builder, it comes from the same Greek word where we get our word architect. Paul literally says, I am the skilled architect. Paul is the master builder because he is the one who with shovel in hand, who with a post hole digger in the other, he went to Corinth, he plowed up that never before developed ground, he tilled it up, he prepared the ministry, and he laid the foundation in Corinth. And those who came after him were not to start something new, but rather to work on that which had already begun. Now there's two ways in which we can understand this analogy, and both of them are true. There is this specific sense, and that's the one I think is explicitly implied here, that in Corinth, Paul was the one who laid the proper foundation. And anywhere a church is to be planted, a proper foundation must be laid before a church can be established. When we try to come in and plant a church with materials, and we do not first have a solid foundation, God will not bless such a work. We must lay the foundation first. And Paul said in Corinth that he was the one who had laid that foundation. It had already been laid. And there were those who were attempting to lay another foundation or to depart from the foundation he had laid. And he's saying, no, no, no. I'm the wise master builder. I laid the foundation. Your job is to build upon it. That's the specific sense. But there's also the general sense in which Paul, who is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the one who received the commission to reveal the mystery of the church. What is the mystery of the church? The mystery of the church is that we have a body of Jew and Gentile worshiping together the Israel made with that circumcision without hands who are worshiping the true Messiah right alongside one another. Unheard of in the Old Testament. Unimaginable in the Old Testament. And Paul laid that foundation in his preaching and in his writings. So we can truly say this is our foundation. The, the epistles serve as the foundation. They, they are not the foundation. They reveal the foundation to us, I should say. We'll get to the foundation, verse 11. And this is something that Paul did once for all. He laid the foundation and all those who come after must build in accordance with the foundation that was laid by the apostle. There are no apostles today. I don't care what the sign says in the church down the road. There are no apostles today. That ministry has ceased and the work was completed. And in this sense, Paul laid the foundation once 
for our all time. And our job is not to come up with a new foundation produced with the wisdom of this age, but to use the foundation laid out for us in Scripture. Until the end of the world, the Scriptures will be all sufficient for the work of the gospel ministry. And then he says this, I am the wise master builder. I laid the foundation. Notice in verse 10, and another buildeth thereon. This phrase echoes the statement that Paul made earlier in the chapter when he said, I have planted, Apollos watered. Paul is unraveling the blueprints, so to speak. Think of, think of the church. Think of the New Testament administration as architectural plans. And Paul is the one who drafted those plans, and now he's unraveling them for us. And our job for the last 2,000 years, and it will still be our job until our Lord comes again, is to execute those plans. This is the only correct way to carry out the work of the ministry. A foundation must be laid, and God's people must build upon that foundation. And then he issues this very sobering warning in verse 10 at the very end. He says, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. Taking part in the ministry of the New Testament church is a serious calling that Paul includes with a warning. And I want you to see that Paul did not say, let the pastors take heed. Let the deacons take heed. Let the men of the church take heed. Let the teachers take heed. Let the treasurer take heed. No. He says, let every man, and by implication, every woman, take heed. Every member must take heed. Again, this implies that every man is called to serve. We believe that the pastor, the elder, is accountable to the local congregation. He is a member of the local body. It is just the gifts of God and the calling of God that places the pastor in his role, but it is the gifts in God and the calling of God that place you in your role. You are all builders in the program of God. I want you to see yourself that way. When you think about your relationship to Christ Fellowship, when, when next time somebody asks you, what do you do there? Say, I'm a builder. No, don't say that. You'll confuse them. But think that way. You're a builder. You have a job to do. And if you don't do your job, there will be a deficit in the work here. You are all personally responsible for the stewardship of the church where the Lord has placed you. So many will come across a problem in their local assembly. They will see something that they don't agree with that causes conflict. And what will they do? They tuck tail and run. And don't get me wrong, I think there are times when you may leave. I think there are times when you should leave. And I think there are times when you shouldn't leave. But far too often, before even trying to be a faithful builder and correct the issue, we just leave. We just church hop and we go down the road. Paul is saying, don't do that. You're accountable. And I believe that God will hold those accountable who take their church membership so lightly 
as to neglect the responsibility. Imagine, imagine if you parented that way. Imagine if your, your children were having issues and you just left them and found some new kids. Well, guess what? won't take very long until that new set of children is going to have some issues too. You shouldn't parent that way. You shouldn't pastor churches that way. And you shouldn't even be a church member in that way. I believe that we seriously undervalue the covenantal vows that we make when we join the Lord's church. You're accountable. And because of this high calling and this great duty, you must take heed how you perform this work. Take heed a careful, close, calculated examination. And of course, the standard for this examination is the Word of God. You must judge everything you do as a citizen of Christ's kingdom and as a member of Christ's church to ensure that it is in accordance with the Bible. One of the blessings of church planting, and this is something I personally experienced planting Christ Fellowship, is that it causes you to question everything. I mean, imagine it. You are, you are going to plant a church and you've got this big empty building and now you think, well, where are we going to put things? Well, what about the pulpit? Why didn't we put it over in the corner? Why, why, why didn't we uh, just ditch the pulpit altogether? Because we ask the question, what's the biblical thing to do? Well, the biblical thing to do is for the Word of God to to take the centerpiece in the worship of the church. That's why the Protestant reformers insisted upon having a pulpit in the center of their auditoriums as opposed to the papal churches that added off to the side. What about our offerings? Are we going to pass a plate? Are we going to have a box? We had to ask the question, what's the most biblical thing to do? And church planting causes you to ask these questions. How are we going to evangelize our city? Christ said, go into all the world. Make disciples. How are we going to do that? What is the biblical way to do that? We have to ask these questions. And it's not only true in church planting. It's true in your own individual lives. One of the first manifestations of conversion is that you will have the desire to live biblically and serve Christ biblically. You will have that desire. Perhaps some of you can recall the change that took place when God converted you. Some things that you had just gotten the habit of doing. Some, some ways that you were just trained to think. Suddenly you, have to, you had to ask yourself, is this biblical? Is this biblical? Before you were a Christian, you didn't have to think about what you were going to put on before you left the house in the morning. But now, you're, you're living to serve Jesus Christ and you need to think, what would he have me to look like when I go out into public? You didn't have to think about what you were going to put on when you drove down the road. But now you have to think, what would God have me to listen to and to fill my mind with? Christians ask the question, is this biblical? And your service to Christ and your Christian life is not good enough if it is not in line with the Bible. Consider yourself and consider this church free from the courts of public opinion. 
See, it's, it's liberating. There's a sense in which it's very liberating. Because you realize, as a Christian, you are not obligated to keep up with the Joneses. You are not obligated to keep up with the times. We don't care about pleasing men. We must please God. And in order to live in a manner that is pleasing to God, and in order to plant a church that is glorifying to God, we must take heed. These are the framers. These are those who are gracious participants in the New Testament ministry. And the God who gave you the grace to serve is the one who defines the terms of your service. And this brings us now to verse 11. We looked at the framers. I want you to now consider the foundation. Verse 11. Glorious verse. And it's even more glorious when we keep it in context. Why must we take heed of how we build? Why must, must we be so careful? When you're building a home, you don't have to be this careful. There's a number of different types of woods you can use, a number of different primers you can use, and they'll all get the job done, more or less. But when it comes to the building of God, verse 9, ye are God's building. When it comes to that building, there is one and only one method of building that is approved of God. Paul said in verse 10 that he laid the foundation, and brothers and sisters, this was not just any foundation. This was not one of many acceptable foundations. This was not a foundation that worked for Paul, but might not work for us. This is the only foundation that can be used in biblical ministry for any church, any organization, any assembly, or any congregation. And if anything is built upon another foundation, it is not the work of God. I believe there's a lot of things in the Bible that men are dogmatic about that maybe they shouldn't be. This is not one of them. This is a dogmatic, dig your heels into the ground text. Verse 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The true and indispensable foundation is Jesus Christ. This foundation is exclusive. This foundation is non-negotiable. This foundation is inflexible. This foundation is unchanging. This foundation is definitive. And a couple of things we see right off the bat. Firstly, the impossibility of laying another foundation. Notice that word can. Other foundation can no man lay. It is impossible to do the work of God with any other foundation. It cannot be done. Every true church, no matter what they may differ on, on down the line, will share this key distinction. Their rallying cry, their theme, their banner, their great arcade, the point of integration, all roads that lead to where will lead to Christ. Secondly, this foundation is not a set of doctrines, nor is it a statement of faith. It is a person. It is a person. That is because Jesus Christ is the heartbeat of Christianity. And all doctrines and all practices must flow from Him, to Him, through Him, for Him, because of Him, that He might be glorified. 
by affirming that Jesus is the foundation. We are not, however, devaluing the importance of doctrine and theology. Rather, we're putting it in its proper place. The only reason why doctrine or theology matters is because of Jesus. And those who say, well, we don't need theology, we just love Jesus, are sadly mistaken. Because of Jesus, you do need theology. Next time someone says that to you, just ask them who Jesus is. What will they say? Well, he's the son of the son of the one true and living God sent to earth to be the propitiation. Oh, wait a minute. That's theology. That's doctrine. So because of Jesus, we have theology, but we must never put Jesus off to the side and take some subsidiary doctrine and raise it to our foundation. It is the person and work of Christ which must define all that we do and believe. It is not our Baptist distinctives that serve as our foundation. It is not the style of music that we sing that serves as our foundation. It is not the way that we look that serves as our foundation. It is not the English translation of the Bible we use that is our foundation. We are founded upon the primacy and centrality of Christ, and that determines all of those other things. To affirm Jesus as our foundation is to affirm Jesus as the preeminent head of the church. To declare that he is the sovereign Lord and creator of the heavens and the earth. To confess that salvation is exclusively in him. To proclaim that the only hope of wretched sinners being made right with God is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to acknowledge that there is coming a day in which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When you die, you will not stand before the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. When you die, you will not stand before the presiding minister of the PCUSA. And all God's people said, Amen. When you die, you will stand before Jesus Christ. Because He is the foundation. To affirm Jesus is to acknowledge all that the Bible says about Him. To acknowledge that He is holy. To acknowledge that He is omnipotent. To acknowledge that He is omniscient. To acknowledge that He is omnipresent. To acknowledge that He is transcendent. That He is pure. And if the Jesus you believe in, if the Jesus upon which your ministry or work or church or life or whatever else it is, is founded upon, is not the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, it is not Jesus at all. Now just because the Bible says that no other foundation can be laid doesn't mean that there haven't been those who have tried. Well, there's plenty who call themselves Christians who have laid another foundation. They've, they've attempted to do so, but it's not the work of God. There are those who claim to be a participant in the gospel ministry, but they are building on another foundation and another Jesus. Men like the Pope of Rome, men like Alexander Campbell, who began the Campbellite movement, the Stone Campbell Restoration. They now call themselves the Churches of Christ. Why do we say they build upon another foundation? Because they explicitly deny the centrality of Jesus Christ in the salvation of sinners. They believe that it is Jesus Christ 
plus baptism, plus church membership, plus good works, plus this, plus that, when you take away from the place of Jesus and the salvation of sinners, you have yourself another Jesus. Men like Joseph Smith, the prophet of the Latter-day Saint movement, who explicitly says that when he asked God and he prayed to God and said, Lord, which church should I join? God said, they're all corrupt. They're all done away with. My church is not on this earth. You need to go and lay another foundation. Men like Charles Russell, who founded the Watchtower Society, call themselves Jehovah's Witness, but deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, that's laying another foundation. They profess Jesus, but not the Jesus of the Bible. And I mention these groups specifically because these are some of the most prominent ones in our area. But there are others. Those who deny the triunity of God. Say, why is this so important? You seem like you're just being really divisive. What gives? What gives is that we're talking about another God. See, nobody would have an issue if we preached a message on why Allah is not the true God. Or why the gods of Hinduism are not the true God. Why? Because it's a different culture and it's different terminology. But friend, there's no difference. In Hinduism, which uses Asian terminology, Oriental terminology, and religions right here in our own backyard that use the same vocabulary and Christianese kind of talk, but preach a different God. I don't care what you call him. I don't care if you call him Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the scriptures. It is not the true Jesus. And their ministers are not true ministers. Their buildings are not the true works of God. Any true church must be founded on Jesus Christ lest it devolve into some just glorified religious country club or even worse, a soul-destroying cult. Keep the music. Keep the ordinances. Keep the appearance. And take Jesus away. And what do you have? Nothing. A building that is destined to crumble. We must work hard to ensure that the true Christ is the foundation for all we do in the service of God. We must take heed. How can we take heed? How can we tell if we have the proper foundation? Let me give you some very practical investigatory work you can do. Is Jesus Christ explicitly and consistently proclaimed? Is he exalted in the pulpit ministry? Is he exalted in the singing? Is he exalted in our fellowship, our conversations with one another? Are we truly Christ's fellowship? Can you guarantee that any visitor who happens to attend will surely hear the truth of Christ's gospel and will surely know what it means to be reconciled to God by Jesus Christ? Or could you attend this church for months and never hear Jesus proclaimed? Next time we will consider the materials and the continuation of this building, 
But we must first drop anchor with this foundation. Because if you have a faulty foundation, it will not matter what materials you use. We have to be careful how we build today because it will affect how we build tomorrow. And if we want faithful men and women to serve here in future generations, we must be faithful today. A lot of problems in America, not just ecclesiastical ones, have been a result of kicking things down the, the, the pike. It's kicking the can down a few years. And it's happened too in our churches. Would to God that he would raise up a younger generation that would say the buck stops here. I dream of the day that Edsel is called to be an elder in this church. And by the way, that's happened. I know pastors who are now in their 60s and 70s that serve alongside elders who they knew in nursery or in Sunday school. But if we're not faithful today, that will never happen. There's coming a day when our foundation will be evaluated before the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be a divine building inspection. As we close, turn to Matthew 7. It'll be the last thing I ask you to look at this evening. Matthew 7. I want to share with you a picture of what it will look like on that day. Look at Matthew 7. Verse 21. Again, this is another one of those texts that is often taken out of context and applied to personal salvation. But we must not forget that in the context here, Jesus is addressing false ministers. Verse 21, he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. All of those who try to conduct a ministry with a faulty foundation will hear this rejection when they stand before Christ. And then this analogy, verse 24, There's, Therefore... Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, wise master builder, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. That is those who have the proper foundation. But look at verse 26. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. We must build upon a foundation that will withstand the fires of hell, the storms of earth, and the trials of God. And may we sing with Edward Mote, the great hymn writer, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us as a people here tonight. 
Oh Lord, would you hammer these truths home to our hearts? Would you ingrain them in the fabric of Christ Fellowship, particular Baptist Chapel? May we be founded upon the person of Jesus Christ, who he is in accordance with the word of God. And may once we've laid that foundation, build upon it with the materials that are pleasing unto you. Father, we love you because you have first loved us. We praise you for this opportunity to worship you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.